0: Food that's good for the environment, good for the people who eat it, and good for the people who grow it. They pick it so it's beautiful when it comes to market, and you get to enjoy that.
1: Local businesses is the, the first place that we can directly support somebody. You've got to believe in what you do, and if you stick to that, then you're getting there anyway. Hey, what's up? Stefan Posthumi here with another Quick Sound Food podcast, and today I speak with Kirsten McHugh from The Schoolhouse in Gerringong. You may have heard of the schoolhouse. It's a fantastic little venue that runs as a cafe and it also runs as a workshop space. But primarily we're talking about the cheese that Kirsten produces there and all that also the tea that she blends and produces that's grown at her farm in Foxground. Kirsten is really integrated into the local food community around Jerengong and the Kayama areas and has some fantastic insights into the current local food situation in the region. I really enjoy chatting with Kirsten. I learn a lot about cheese and about tea and about local food and her place within it at the schoolhouse. So I hope that you enjoy my chat with Kirsten McHugh from the schoolhouse in Gerangong.
0: I guess the tea comes first. Uh, we came down here in about 2002 and fell in love with a really beautiful piece of uh, rainforesty. rainforesty Land in Fox Ground it yep. was very steep. It uh, faced the wrong way. It was really hard to grow interesting things. Um, but we did a bit of research and finally figured out that tea might grow really well in the mm. growing conditions there.
1: So, what is it about the growing conditions there? Well,
0: it's uh, beautiful, rich volcanic soil, yep. and it's a very high rainfall area and it stays quite humid throughout the summer and the soil often will stay quite moist and cool throughout the winter okay so they're fabulous conditions for a plant that likes a lot of moisture doesn't mind humidity and um can withstand you know wetish um heavy soil yep and a lot of plants really hate that Uh, and a lot of the plants that we were daydreaming about growing hate that Mm -hmm. olives and grapes so uh, we had to be sensible about a plant that would enjoy those conditions and tea doesn't mind it and um it doesn't mind shade so we had a lot it was very shady there not a lot of sun or north-facing aspects to ripen fruit crops Mm -hmm. Um, and so because we weren't we're not trying to we're trying to grow leaves rather than uh, fruit and tea plants tend to enjoy shade and not mind um, the cooler wetter conditions uh, it seemed like the ideal thing to try and grow cool. and they and the, the plants grew really well uh, they seemed to really thrive in those conditions we had when we when I first planted the tea plants out there was um, a lot of uh, kangaroos in our at our place and wallabies as well the kangaroos didn't seem to they weren't interested in the tea but the wallabies loved it oh really so I I, t- I grew the plants a bit higher than you would normally find in a, a tea plantation okay. I was trying to grow them above the wallaby grazing line yeah. So, uh, so they're a bit taller, and now there's the you know the tea bushes are big, so there's plenty for everyone. The yep. wallabies still get in there; they eat the lateral stuff. Yep. But um, most of the, the the new growth, which is on the top of the hedgerow, is what I'm picking, and mm-hmm. they don't really get to that anymore. Cool. So, um, yeah.
1: How long did it? How long did it take you to get sort of like a usable crop out of your first um, plants? It,
0: well, it took. I planted in about two thousand and three. I was. Pro- I mean, I probably could have been picking a lot earlier, but I didn't really start to pick and experiment until about 2008, Uh 2007, 2008. And that was really experimental because I was pretty much trying to figure it out as I went along. There was no manual. There wasn't anyone else doing it that I could copy from. It was really just a process of trying to figure thinking oh what would a Chinese peasant do yeah (laughs) trying to to replicate that and and I knew a little bit about you know I'd read a little bit about the processing method in Japan the processing method they use for their green tea and so I was trying to copy some aspects of that processing with a very lo-fi Set up, yeah. you know, like it was really <laughs> rudimentary. Um, no machines or anything to do anything. It was all hand hand done. It still is. Um, and my husband bought me a book written by these two French guys, and they it was about their travels in the tea growing areas in China and their descriptions of the different little tinkety ways that different villages make their tea or process their tea. And it had been translated not that well into English. So it was sort of this really dense, weird, florid text. I'm trying to read all the... Trying to extract all the useful bits out of that. So
1: That must have been interesting. Yeah, it was a bit
0: nuts and a little bit um, haphazard. And without any real certainty that you would end up with Mm. a decent product because it was also trial, trial and error but eventually kind of figured out ways of doing things that were that yielded a consistent result mm-hmm. and um, yeah how so, did you
1: how did like you begin getting the teas to the public
0: well i basically had to start doing going to farmers markets yeah. to sell it okay. um, so yeah so i started to <clears throat> had to figure out how to package it and 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 work that out and then started to do some Local markets and some Sydney markets. Yeah,
1: cool. I yeah. mean, one thing about uh, what you do is that a, there's a lot of people that do sell tea at markets, but they don't grow it.
0: No, no, it's it's all it's largely all imported. Yeah, uh, uh, some of them will be selling. There is some Australian-grown tea, and some of them will be selling aspects of that Australian-grown tea. But yeah, most will be selling imported. And they, they'll blend. They might blend it here, so you know they'll find mm. different leaves and. Yeah, there's a crazy guy down He's sort of doing a similar thing to me, just growing tea and processing it mostly as green tea. But he's sort of had a lot of experience in Japanese tea plantations, and um, so he's he's got some machinery mm. um, that helps with his processing. <clears throat> but he's complained about much the same thing that you know he's trying to sell tea that's actually grown in Australia, mm. um, and everyone else who's selling tea, it's all just sort of imported stuff blended here. But
1: do you do you find do you find that there's a good public response to the fact that you grow it yourself? In, yeah, it's generally it's
0: pretty uh, enthusiastic. Yeah. Um. So yeah. So people definitely like that the idea that it's grown in Australia. Also. That, that it's grown locally um, in the Illawarra but I guess the other thing is that I don't use any chemicals, it's all very naturally mm-hmm. grown so I think people do respond to that. Is that there is there product. just
1: one type of tea then? Like uh, tea plant?
0: <clears throat> no, there are a few different cultivars, so mm. so it's all Camellia sinensis okay. um, which is the, the tea plant and um, But I do have a few different cultivars and so I've got one particular one that is a bit better for black tea, so I do make a black tea, Mm -hmm. uh, though it is a lighter style, not so tanniny as an English breakfast. And I have other cultivars that are more the traditional or the preferred Japanese cultivars yeah, right. and I use them for the green tea, process them mainly all as green tea.
1: Okay, cool. Uh, yeah. so, so the difference between black and green is, is, is in the process?
0: Yep, pretty right. much. So what's yeah. the difference? Well, <clears throat> with green tea, you're trying to... When a tea is picked or damaged, you know, an animal bites it or a human picks it or whatever and you start to get the browning and the darkening of the leaf, that's an oxidation process that's catalyzed by an enzyme. So as soon as the leaf is damaged, an enzyme reaction um, starts in the leaf and that's what causes the oxidation. Um, With green tea, you're trying to prevent that enzyme reaction. You're trying to prevent any oxidation. You're trying to capture the green color and, and obviously the, the flavour that comes along wow, with okay. um, the lack of oxidation in the leaf. So what you tend to do in the, the Japanese method is to steam the leaf, uh, subject it to steam heat within an hour or so of picking okay. uh, to sort of trap, stop the enzyme reaction and trap the, the green qualities mm. in the leaf. And then they go on to dry the leaf. And that's the process that I tried to emulate when I was figuring out how to process the green tea. With black tea, you're trying to stimulate the oxidation. Okay. Uh, So you'll find in a big... You know, in a commercial plantation where they're making black tea or processing black tea, there are lots of... They'll tend to bring the leaf in from the field... They'll tend to roll it, um, maybe chop it then. Yeah, right. They twist it, it all, all mechanically, but it's going through a process where they're really giving, you know, they're smashing yep. the leaf up, they're pounding it a little bit. Then they'll let it uh, wilt and, um, and heat up. Just the activity in the leaf will tend mm-hmm. to sort of, it'll, it'll wilt, it'll heat. Uh, the oxidation will commence and then they'll uh, dry it and that will finish the the process so i tried to emulate that too
1: yeah okay but
0: all the twisting and smashing and rolling that was all just with my bare hands (laughs) (laughs) there's only so much of that that you can do with your own hands and uh so i can't with my black tea i don't get the same level of tannin that you would achieve with a mechanically processed black tea so it's still characteristically a black tea it's got that lovely woody aroma and um deep amber color and black tea flavor but i always recommend that it's a a tea that you drink without milk you know once you put milk in it it doesn't really have the tannin to support the
1: it's kind of cool though in a sense though because it's It tells the story of what what you do because because you're a small tea producer and you do everything by hand you can't have a black tea that you're going to drink with milk so drink it like it's you know drink it without milk and enjoy what it is because that's that's what you can make yeah exactly yeah Yeah.
0: and and it takes a while for people to well some people aren't predisposed to that some people think oh well I really want something that's just like an English breakfast. If I can't get that, I'll go elsewhere, and that's fine. But I think other people are quite excited by the idea that, okay, well, in these circumstances, on this piece of dirt, in this piece of forest, with these processing, with what's available to process it, this is how tea tastes Mm. from this location. And I think more and more people... Yeah, yeah, no, that's exactly right. Yeah. yeah. Um, so you could get really wanky about it, but yeah. pretty much <laughs> yeah. yeah it's a it's that sort of an argument and that sort of approach and um and that's to me, that's the future of small boutique food growing in australia yeah uh, it, it it's going to have it's going to respond to a public who are more willing to. Enjoy what's there, what that piece of land offers. Enjoy its qualities. Note the things about it that you might not like, but appreciate it for what it is rather than thinking, oh, it's not quite the same as, you know, the cheese or the tea or the salami or whatever that I had um, back in such and such a town. Um, So, yeah, I think the more people are willing to uh, collaborate in that sort of... Mm. Food engagement uh, over food, the more opportunities there will be for people to try different things. And yeah,
1: and that's cool because also like with the with with you d- sort of directly interacting with your customers, you can tell them the story of yeah, what it is and exactly. you can educate them about yeah. why it's different. Yeah, yeah, yeah,
0: no, well, that's definitely the benefit of of doing markets and especially local markets because you can explain it yeah. uh, to people then and there. And you know, there's I've I've lost a lot of tea sales because I'll explain to someone, they'll reach straight for the black tea. I'll explain to them (laughs) what it's like, why it's like that, and it won't be what they want. So that's fine. You know, I'd rather they didn't.
1: Yeah. Rather than be disappointed. Yeah, you'd rather than buy it, like not buy it once, take it home, and be disappointed, then find the person who will keep coming back for it. Yeah, exactly. And 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 is interested in the story. Do you find that? Do you have to sell your tea at a higher price point than imported yeah. stuff? Yeah.
0: yeah, well, I don't know how it compares necessarily to, uh, you know, an, a, a boutique, small-scale, artisan imported tea, yeah. for instance. Certainly it's at a, a much higher price point than a supermarket tea. Of course, yeah. um, So, yes, I definitely do. I don't... I think the fact that it's all... It's hand-picked, it's hand-processed, yeah. it's basically yeah it doesn't wouldn't get made unless it was essentially my slave labor yeah exactly yeah it is at a higher price point and people who are interested in the whys and wherefores of how it got there uh, are not really that too fussed about it um but yes it's
1: certainly that's like a lot of a lot of stuff that you find at at farmers markets or a lot of sort of boutique and artisan products it's it's just as much people paying for the knowledge of where it comes from yeah. and the fact that it's handmade and the fact that it's locally grown yeah. as they are paying for the product, yes. you know, like you might get, I don't know, you might, you might get imported teas that taste just as good as yours yeah. or different or whatever sure. it is, but it's, it's the peace of mind that people yeah. are paying for. And of that's, course. it's promising to see more people out there willing to pay for that.
0: Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Cool. yeah no, it's a, it's definitely a, people are, are growing in their knowledge of what's around and why it's important to uh, to seek out a local product that's uh grown cleanly and uh mm. yeah no, it's yeah good. it's
1: cool and and tea definitely a unique one like you don't see that so you yeah. said this guy in tassie is there many others that you know that uh,
0: grow well <clears throat> there are a few in victoria and i think also in western australia they tend to be growing it as part of a a rollout by a Japanese green tea company that okay. came to Australia about probably about I don't know, 12 years ago now maybe a little bit longer and they they wanted to have tea that was freshly grown in their winter right. so they started to set up they did a bit of a collaboration with um, state uh, department of you know departments of primary industry and they set up a few trial plots there was one up on the central coast at mangrove mountain Uh, There was one in Western Australia. There's one in the King Valley in Victoria, and they were trying to get local farmers to grow tea, which they would then buy from the farmer um, as leaf, bulk leaf, and then they would process it. They would set up a little processing plant in that vicinity, and they would process it and then send it shipped back to Japan. Yeah, so yeah. I think it's largely all exported. I'm pretty sure I saw a packet of it up in the, the IGA at Gerringal oh, okay. once. Yeah. I don't know if it's still there. So I think from time to time it makes its way onto the local market. Maybe they've got too much or whatever. Um, <clears throat> and so, yes, I so I know there are green tea growers in those areas, but I, it's pretty rare. There, there are not many people going it alone and mm. just doing their own thing. Mm. There's a lady up in the Dane Tree who I think is doing similar, sort of similar thing to me, and that guy down in Tassie. So, yeah, but they're few and far between. Mm.
1: Yeah. Um, shifting direction then, Yum. the other thing that you do is make cheese. Yeah. So we'll have to start at the beginning of the cheese making yeah, story again. Yeah, sure. <laughs> so
0: um, we, when we first came down here and we were planting the tea and getting all, that all up and running was around the time when this area, which is traditionally a dairy farming area, Mm -hmm. was starting to feel the effects of dairy deregulation. Uh, There was a lot of discussion locally and regionally. There were lots of family-owned dairy farms that were probably not going to be viable in the new environment. So there were people really coming to grips with what to do about the fact that they couldn't keep on with essentially their family legacy. Mm. So it was something that was felt very deeply in the community and there was quite a lot of discussion about it and
1: so for pe- so for people that don't understand how that worked, like the deregulation yeah. and how that affected dairy farmers, yeah. can you explain what like what the legislation was and how that and how it worked and how well? It made, okay, made I, places.
0: I'm not going to pretend to know the specifics of the right. legislation, but essentially what it meant was that a subsidy that had been that had made small dairy farms marginal but viable.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, And and I think the subsidy had been in place since the 1950s. Mm -hmm. Um, It was removed. Yeah. And therefore, a a dairy farm wasn't able to rely on the fact that a certain level of production would be Mm subsidised, you know, automatically bought at a a regulated price Mm -hmm. um, by a a dairy processor. Yeah then they were faced with the prospect that they had to... There would no longer be a, um, a platform under the, the price, so the price would be set by the market, mm. um, essentially set by the processor. Yeah. Um, and so what it meant was that small farms and a lot of the holdings around here were reasonably small, mm. uh, just that... What it meant was that... Dairy production became a, a quantity, a, a, a question of quantity, mm. and you really had to be uh, able to have a, a large output to to then derive any a reasonable income yeah. or, or to get a return, a, mm. a, re, a reasonable return for your efforts. So those small farms who uh, had had small herds and and a, a low output. It, it just became impossible for them to mm. continue because they weren't able to achieve a price um, for their milk mm. that would make it worthwhile for them to continue or mm. affordable for them to con- for them to continue. Um, so that was... And, you know, I think the legislation came in in the... I don't know, maybe the late 90s. Okay. I, I don't know the, the exact date, but certainly by the early 2000s when we came down here, that was when there was a lot of angst about it. Yeah, right. And and that was when it was all starting to... People were really... It was no longer an academic issue. Now people were really dealing with the consequences of it mm. and, and faced with big decisions because of it. And my husband and I were thinking, well, surely one way of, uh, of dealing with the new environment is to look at how you might start doing value-adding on farm or in the vicinity, in the, in the region, in the area, um, how would you add value to the milk that's being produced, how do you make other products, uh, what's involved, how do you make butter, how do you make cheese, is that a reasonable way to, a, yeah. you know, is that a reasonable thing to think about? And so we just started trying to figure out how you might put together a small-scale cheese-making operation.
1: So, so was that an original decision? Basically, like you had contact with the local community of dairy farmers yeah. about the the plight what they were yeah. they were going through at the time, and it, yeah, it was like a decision for you to say, well, how can we help you guys? Like you're not milking well, cows. It wasn't. It, yeah, <laughs> I mean, it was.
0: It was. The typical Jack and Kiss decision, it was a reasonably hot-headed, head-full-of-steam kind of approach, you know, in a similar way to how we'd done the tea. There was no planning or forethought. (laughs) We fell in love with the beauty and the aesthetics of the place yep. and then thought oh, all right well we better try and grow something here yeah uh what are we going to grow let's try yeah. and figure that out so i guess we were we loved the area and we felt you know we knew some of the people involved and we felt um strongly about not just about continue the continuation of a dairy industry or dairy presence in the area, but also we felt strongly about the fact that this was surely an area that was going to feel the pressure of expanded residential, metropolitan residential development. Um, And we thought it was really crucial that there were viable food industries down here based on a viable... Agricult local agriculture, mm-hmm. and so so that the interest in the cheese was part of that interest. I guess mm-hmm. um, there was a young and growing wine industry down here, so it seemed to match up on lots of different fronts. It just seemed like a a sensible not, not, not sensible. It seemed <laughs> like a complementary aspect to a lot of the threads that were weaving their way through this area yeah Um, and and we were always I guess from the time we came down he very passionate about the fact that it seemed good to us if the area still retained a, a dairy focus a food focus and that that the beautiful soil and land down here was used still substantially for food growing rather than for, you know, un- rather than being put under concrete. Yeah, exactly,
1: yeah. So, and, yeah, so, so you took the plunge into cheese making. What was yeah. the first step? Was it like Other do some to, courses yeah, and start yeah, exactly. educating yourself? Yeah, yeah, pretty
0: much, yeah. Just start figuring out how, how it might work. Which meant going and doing a. I think in two thousand and four, going up to the Southern Highlands and doing a weekend cheese making workshop. Yeah. Uh, and then who was that with? That was uh, at Small Cow Farm. Yeah. And okay. Was, oh no, sorry. The first one I did was at Leichhardt Tafe. Okay. Uh, but it was Carol Wilman, um, who's a very, you know, well-regarded uh, cheese educator and has been doing home cheese making courses in Australia for decades. Okay. And then I then she did one up at Small Cow Farm and I did one up there and then I did a few others and then I went to a little cheese factory in New Zealand um, and did a course that they ran over the course of a week. Yep. And so gradually figuring out how, having learnt techniques to make cheese up on a small scale, gradually seeing how it works at a larger mm-hmm scale and trying to figure out how to, how to do that. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. yeah. And then
1: you build, you know, the, the cheese, <coughs> cheese room here in the yeah,
0: school. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. Another agonizing process when we, <laughs> fi- cause it was, a, I don't know why we do these things. So, I don't know, we tend to try and figure out how to do things ourselves. So we bought this building and then we had to figure out how to, Fit out the cheese room. How to put it together. So it was a learning process the whole way along.
1: Yeah, so, yeah, and it hasn't stopped. I'm sure you're probably still learning. Yeah,
0: it. absolutely. Yeah. Well, I mean, cheese, especially, I think, is something where you could do it your whole life and still have things to learn. Still mm. have surprises along the way. So yeah, yeah, yeah sure. it's pretty fascinating.
1: Yeah, it's um, and so the 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 milk that you use for the cheese, it all comes from different farms around the area no
0: well no we get our cow's milk from a rose a farm in rose valley okay uh who we've worked with pretty much the whole way along and um it's about two kilometers away it's a very short journey that the milk makes back here Mm -hmm. to get pasteurized and then turned into cheese for the last year and a half maybe we've been making some goat cheese as well and that Goat milk comes from a little goat dairy down in uh, Falls Creek, just south oh, okay. of Nara. Yeah, nice. So, yeah.
1: Yeah, I've heard about that one down there.
0: Yeah, Maple yeah. Ridge. Oh, that. Well, that's who I was chatting to. Oh, okay. That's the. Oh, right. <laughs> the new so delivery So now you, can't, day, get your, you yeah, can't get your goat milk for the week. Right? Thanks for telling me. Yeah. So. How well, long
1: have they been up and running for now?
0: I'd say. Not quite two years. Yeah,
1: because when we did our South Coast book, I was oh, talking to Rosie down at our oh, Cupid's, yeah. and she was saying, and that, so that was 2015, she was saying, yeah, there's a goat producer here, so we're going to do a goat's one, but yeah. they didn't have the license to sell her the milk or yeah. something like that. Right?
0: That would be about right. Time, yeah. yeah, yeah, that would be about right. So yeah. what's that, a couple of years? Yeah, yeah. Two, yeah two, three years. Um, yeah, well, once they did get up and running, once they did get their license, I'm pretty sure I started playing around with their milk soon after yeah. that.
1: Well, there's such a demand for goat's cheese now like yeah. and people are just loving it yeah you
0: know? really yeah. yeah uh yeah no and it's a lovely farm you know they are beautifully cared for animals and the milk is lovely you know it's really uh it's got that it's got a lovely goat uh character but it's not overly barnyardy like the Cheese tastes very clean, Mm -hmm. Um, so people, even people who don't really like goat cheese, tend to respond really well to Mm -hmm. it. So yeah, no, it's and that's a
1: versatile sort of product that chefs can use in all sorts of different dishes and stuff like that as well. Yeah, Yeah. yes.
0: I mean, I I think I think the cow's milk cheeses are just as versatile. I mean, the goat cheese has a cachet, I suppose. Yeah, and especially through French cuisine. Um, So it. There's a recognition factor, I guess, that chefs are um, relying on with the the goat cheeses, but I, I think that you can make cow's milk cheeses that are just as interesting mm. and just as um, versatile in the kitchen. Cool. Uh, they probably just aren't as well known. So, yeah, yeah.
1: It takes a while for everyone to get educated yeah, on what it is, right. and then once yeah. it's familiar, then it's like that. You know try. what it is?
0: It takes a while to get people <clears throat> to trust their own taste buds <clears throat> rather than their sense of fashion or trend or what they know because they've seen it in a magazine. Mm. That's actually really a tough process. Mm. Um, and I and I continue to be struck by how little people use the actual taste buds to um, evaluate a product. Yeah, okay. Um, so much of it is a preconceived notion what i've read in a food magazine what i've seen on a food tv program all
1: that sort of stuff it's yeah that's really true that's such an interesting point you make because that that mentality spreads across every product in the food in the food world from wine to alcohol any types of alcohol to cheeses to breads and you know whatever's on trend it's like now like (laughs) there's recently been this really like I don't know, my sister was talking about how all her friends that are sort of 30 somethings all drink Chardonnay now because it's yeah, the trendy it's back thing. In do, it's back in fashion. Yeah. And it's like. So what's the deal? Like, what's yeah. the deal? Is like, does everyone actually really like Chardonnay the most, or is it yeah. just the fashionable thing yeah. to drink? Or, like you say, like I'm, I'm sure uh, the reason why it's in fashion is because not the majority of people are, dr- are judging their yeah. taste buds. You know, yeah. like there's people out there who, like my dad, who go, "I just drink Shiraz because I like Shiraz, yeah. and I don't bother drinking what else is trendy, like yeah. Tempranillos might be in or something <laughs> like that." So, but he's like, Oh, hey, I want a full-bodied Shiraz, yeah. and that's all I like to drink because he yeah, knows no, what he likes." On but, your dad, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well,
0: that see, that's and. I guess as people become more confident consumers they eventually get to that point they've tasted lots of different Mm. things but eventually it becomes a process where they're actually consulting their own mouth Mm. and their own senses and they'll realize okay well this this mix of flavors and aromas is what really appeals to me that's what I'll seek out and that's what I'll enjoy but it's it's a tough process getting there i think with a lot of people because a lot of food i think every aspect of food culture these days is is trend driven Mm. in one you know one way or another and i think social media plays into that for sure yeah
1: it's interesting um the I, i guess the good thing about when people do get to that point where they're trusting their own taste buds is that it might make them inclined to be a bit more adventurous in what they order yeah, at restaurants or sure. buy from the supermarket yeah. and stuff because they can go, well, let, like, I know what I like. Here's something I haven't tried. Let's yeah, see if I like exactly. that. Not, I know what I like, but I'm going to buy this because it's in fashion yeah, or whatever. I recognise that Yeah, because it's recognisable. Yeah. yeah, social media is a massive one in that, in yeah. that sort of realm because, yeah. yeah, so much is informed by what you see on Instagram or Facebook yeah. or anything like that these days yeah that's a really interesting yeah. interesting point you must see it having sort of that direct contact with your customers at the markets and things yeah. and um i don't know is there, is there a certain cheese that you get asked for all the well, time or something like that or
0: well um it's interesting because i make a few different cheeses that aren't necessarily ones that people know right yeah. off the bat and i'm i'm very ready with a bit of shtick to describe the flavour. Mm-hmm. I, I always have it there to taste anyway. But I, first of all, I'll start by describing what it's like and how they might use it and how they might enjoy it. And um, some then people will taste it. I'm thinking about the crescenza, which is a northern Italian cheese style. It's a fresh cheese. It's got a lovely, fresh, milky flavour. And it's really versatile. You know, I'll use it in salad. Or it's great on... Uh, pizza, it's fabulous in pasta. It's a really lovely, versatile cheese. And so, I'm. A, some people, I'll I'll do the shtick. I'll explain what it's like. I'll tell them how they might use it, and then I'll people will taste it. And I can tell the people who are trying to compare it with something else, right? Or, or trying to find a reference point for it. Oh, it's a bit like such and such. or oh, It's a bit like that. And then I can tell the people who are just allowing the process just tasting it getting a sense of what it feels like in their mouth and and responding to it that way and it's it's really interesting probably 50 percent of people will immediately be reaching for some kind of framework Mm -hmm. of recognizable familiar stuff and others will be the other 50 percent will sort of taste it oh okay didn't know what to expect that's really enjoyable Mm. i really like it i'll have one of those yeah well
1: that (laughs) i guess that's the the sort of world of cheese is so broad there's thousands, oh, thousands. of different varieties yeah. out there and every producer makes it differently yeah. and they all taste different yeah. and here you know i mean at a elementary level people are familiar with like blue is like one type of cheese yeah. to people rather than exactly. a whole spectrum of a, whole family. Uh, yeah, a massive yeah. family of massive family like blue do you like blue cheese well that's a pretty yeah, hard we'll question to answer blue. because there's a lot of different types yeah, really. or like people are exposed to blue green, yeah. and camembert yeah. exposed to cheddars and some yeah. hard cheeses exactly. and then like goats cheese is one cheese as yeah, well and it's exactly. like you know yeah. there's so much out there i think yeah. obviously like in europe and the stuff where there's a lot more small producers and things and yeah. people are exposed to how different producers have a different flavor of a certain yeah, cheese even though absolutely. they might use the same methods or whatever yeah, it might be for sure. um but yeah i guess it's interesting to tr- to, to to see that response and yeah. um I guess maybe try to educate people in a sense. Just say like, don't don't say that it's like camembert because just think of it as something else. Yeah, it's not. You know, like
0: well, you know, I do I do make camembert. um, Just and I was never going to. I just thought, oh, you know, do I really need to be making Australia's two (laughs) thousandth camembert? But I I ended up making it just because it was a sort of recognition factor cheese for people who were a little bit at sea dealing with other styles that they weren't super familiar with. Sure. And so it was nice to have something that was a bit recognizable that I yeah, didn't Yeah, well you to gotta to
1: stuff that you can sell sell to <laughs> yeah, everyone right. yeah, as well. Exactly right, yeah. yeah.
0: <laughs> but um, that's the the trick of it is or the, the difficulty I suppose is that you have to be ready with that story you yep. know the fact that okay well and and ready with a way of describing how you're making that cheese or what you're trying to achieve with that cheese without necessarily having the handy because people autom- oh well is it a cheddar because i i do a couple of hard cheeses neither of them are a cheddar style yep. um and i just have to explain that no it's not a cheddar i i don't use a cheddar method um, it's a bit more like this, that or the other. But really what I should be saying is this is just the hard cheese mm. that I make with a recipe that I've kind of, you know, I've cobbled together myself because it, it's a method that is manageable for me. It showcases the qualities of the milk that I use and so this is how it ends up. Mm. This is this is the hard cheese we end up with. So you tend to kind of make up so I call that that's mountain cheese. Yeah. Okay, yeah. <laughs> so you know, you just you can't I can't sort of legitimately use one of the recognizable handles. Yeah. Because neither of them none of them will be exactly. It must be right. funny it's
1: a funny little psychological process sometimes though because you must be sometimes explaining to people about mountain cheese. And you don't want to use the word cheddar, yeah. But you, you can't. And you and you hold off, you hold off, you hold off, and then they look like they're about to walk away, and you say it's kind of like cheddar, yeah. and then they go, "All right, I'll take two. That's so how yeah. I do
0: it. <laughs> it's a little bit more like a Wensleydale than a cheddar, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> but you know, yeah, no, it's so hilarious. And the other funny thing is that, the other funny thing is the people who have to know more about it than you so there are plenty of people who've eaten so much cheese in France that they will just know way more about whatever you're trying to do here they'll know more about right. it than you and so they'll ta- they'll taste it mm, yeah it's okay but it's not like the such and such I had in France or it's not like the such and such I had here or the... and the, the simple answer is well it's never going to be yeah I know what um, do you expect yeah so that's always it yeah, yeah, that I must be a hard good.
1: one to get past as well. It's yeah. like, well, yeah, th- there's a few reasons why. Like, Firstly, because <laughs> the milk's different and the environment's different yeah, and exactly. the traditions the are different, different and the pastures different, yeah, and all yeah, that yeah, sort yeah. of thing. But, yeah. yeah, I don't know. Everyone comes with their own sort of background and yeah. expectation. But, um, I don't know. I guess I guess, in a sense, like, the whole farmer's market system, even the fact that people are just there talking to yeah, producers exactly. and, and yeah. being there, you know, yeah. tasting no, well, different look, local and, ingredients.
0: And it's a... It's a all of that at the time you might think it's a you might find it an interesting little interaction but it's all useful because mm. it gives you it gives you a lot of information about what the expectations are of someone who's coming to your stall and wanting to try your products so it all it feeds into all of the knowledge that you build up about what people's expectations are and and how you go about meeting them without necessarily changing your product. If you're if you're happy that that's a good consistent product which you are happy to stand behind, but there might be a different way that you present that, or explain it, or introduce people to mm. it. Uh, and so the whole argy bargy of um, conversations with people. Gives you a better basis to be able to do that successfully, totally, yeah. I guess.
1: Yeah, yeah, and getting that direct feedback from from people as well is, yeah. is so important. Yeah, it know? is, and yeah. it can be the smallest little thing that someone says that makes you go, maybe I should yeah. try this or exactly or whatever yeah. it might be. That's very yeah. true. And you also run, you know, you have the public involved here in the building and stuff as well, and do you, yes. you do workshops and events and.
0: We do, yeah. We we at the moment we do uh, workshops. We do. Private functions, uh, and we do different events. So we did a Bastille Day dinner a couple of weeks ago, and we'll try to do something like that on a reasonably regular basis. Mm. We do a tapas night once a month, uh, first Friday of the month. So uh, we, and we always try to feature our cheese whatever local stuff is around Mm -hmm. uh, in the tapas dishes. uh, It
1: must be nice also, like, I guess, you know, in an environment like that, you've got a bit more time with people to be able to tell them what what you're up to and people can see the cheese room right there and can ask you questions about it. Because sometimes at the markets, depending on how busy you are, like, you know, you want to try to give people time, but you are also there to sell stuff and there might be a fair few people trying to buy things off you, so yeah. Yeah. Cool. Um, Just more broadly, quickly, like obviously, you're pretty well ingrained into Illawarra food culture with your relationships with local farmers and having having a venue as well and the Kayama Farmer's Markets. Do you want to just give me a bit of a, you know, your view of food culture in the Illawarra, whether, whether it's between the producers or some of the restaurants that you supply with your cheese? Because as I talk to more people like yourself, it just becomes apparent that there is a really... Well, it's both growing but also very tight knit at the same time, Mm -hmm. community of people who know each other and sort of support each other. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
0: Yeah, well, I guess the aspect of it that really stands out to me is the fact that it is, it does seem to have a real momentum to it and continues, and that momentum continues to grow. Um, Jack and I, my husband and I, we started a local Slow Food Convivium Mm -hmm. down here in 2007 um, Slow Food Saddleback and that was we would do events and we would be trying to find as much local produce as we could to hire, you know, to showcase in those events and so that was our first opportunity to start to get to grips with who was around what they were growing or what were they making and so, from that my, that first foray, I'm continually amazed at what else is coming on online all mm-hmm. the time. Uh, there, are, there are new people coming down here and doing interesting things, uh, and, and it just grows and grows. So, I am really fascinated by how much momentum there seems to be behind um, trying to develop and they're and they're usually quite small scale, but boutique food food crops or food products, mm-hmm. and um, and it's yeah it's it's quite it's really encouraging. There's there's more and more of it all the time. Mm. Um, so yeah, and, and the sh- and the farmers markets are probably the place where you see that mm-hmm. uh, because you once a producer gets to the point where they've got a good product to sell um then they're looking uh, at the markets I guess as a way of, of selling it so you'll sort of see new people coming on stream when they've got their product ready for market and yeah nice. yeah really interesting that's
1: that's really encouraging and and I guess especially as sort of the older generation of farmers get older um, you know younger people younger people taking part in it and, yeah. you know people leaving corporate jobs in Sydney to come to the country yeah. and do stuff, there's lots of those stories and yeah, he, uh, I mean,
0: some are just sort of floating around in the ether at the moment there's a, a guy who I met uh, he and his uh, partner came in here and were talking about how they their dream was to he was a physicist I think or, and their dream was to move down here and start a, a natural brewery mm-hmm. uh, okay. now I don't know if they'll ever do that but that's the sort of that's the sort of and a lot of it's driven by people with a really a passion and a dream you know they really have a very powerful sense of wanting to do something quite romantic and might never happen um or it might be a a tough road to hoe. but people are quite motivated by a, a fairly romantic sense of wanting to do something that involves growing something something where they're much more in touch with nature and the natural environment and I think that the physical beauty of this part of the world sort of naturally inflames those uh those ideas Mm. for people who are predisposed to them I think it's (laughs) <laughs> yeah, they get caught up in the well, romance. You course.
1: see so much. You see so much. Like, I mean, if you're into anything, you know, production or restaurants or yeah. anything, you know, you'd flip through Instagram or Facebook and you see the stories of people who yeah. have made the change that that you've been thinking yeah, about. Yeah. You know, and there's success stories out there, and there's yeah. people making beautiful cheese or bre- yeah. brewing beautiful beers yeah. or whatever it is, and and it, that that sort of that social media thing works twofold in the sense that it gives people the impetus to do it because they see it they see the story and they yeah. see it happening but they also see it as an avenue for them to engage with sure. the public in their business as sure. well which is kind of interesting yes. so yeah yeah for sure yeah yeah.
0: Yeah, it's cool. yeah no it's fascinating um yeah i mean there's always a bit of a flip side to that you can edit these
1: negative. Yeah, things yeah, out. no, there is definitely like but, because that's the thing. It's like you got to be realistic about yes, it as well. At the same time, yeah, it's not all romance. No, and there's people out there that are doing it tough that have made the oh, change. Oh, dude,
0: tell me about it. Well, I mean, anything to do anything well, and to get to the point where you actually feel comfortable. Oh, yeah, okay, I'm kind of making an okay. I'm making an okay product. Yeah, now, that like the. Angst and just blood, sweat, and tears, and sheer terror oh. that it takes to get to that point is just—you know—it's you can't really relate to someone what that's like. Mm. You know, just how you've just got to like doing
1: your first market or something like that with your tea yeah, or whatever. It must yeah. have been like and oh, like making my
0: first batch making
1: your first batch of, of cheese. cheese.
0: <laughs> oh my god! And for two years—not like just the first batch. For two years, it was just sheer unadulterated. Tea- Terror. Yep. <laughs> Am I gonna waste I'm gonna waste all this money, I'm gonna pour you know, I'm gonna create a horrible product that people don't like, it's all gonna go wrong. It's just you know, maybe not all people have that sort of personality. Yeah. So I'm not saying that everyone reacts like that, but oh my god, just I'll tell you what, just terror. Yeah, but, it's a roller coaster. Yeah, totally. And so I'd get people coming in here going. Oh, my God, you're living my dream. Yeah. Oh, God, dude, welcome to my yeah. nightmare. You see my fingernails? Like, yeah, nothing really? left. Yeah. yeah, I don't sleep, just so you know. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah. but so that's what kind of that, like... thats what those sorts of journeys are sort of all about. And I think that maybe people sometimes get too caught up in that it's going to work straight away for some yeah, reason yeah. and they don't realise that it takes a long time to learn something and yeah, to do something yeah. well. Yeah. And, and you always have to learn from your mistakes, so you yeah. kind of have to... Keep a level head when you can and push through the difficult yeah. times and, and continue to yeah. grow and evolve. Yeah. And, you know, your product's going to get better. Your cheese will be better in five years than absolutely. it is now. You know? Yeah,
0: absolutely. No so, doubt about it. Yeah. yeah, for sure. And it's
1: the same. Like, I have sort of go through the same thing with, with publishing books. Like, yeah. we, we make a better book every time we make a new one. Yes. And it was a big step to take for me to change from what I was doing to do it. But, like, yeah. once again, like, it's always got its ups and its downs. But then at the end of the day, when you're producing something that you're proud of, and that the public response to it's all about the public response for me it's like when people come to you and they go this is great we really like this yeah that's where it's all yeah yeah yeah
0: yeah no it does it is um it's funny what you put yourself through to get to the point where you know you're eliciting a (laughs) positive reaction because i think the thing also is people don't really realise how much you're putting yourself on the line mm. you know how much you're kind of hanging yourself out for judgement yeah and that's that's real. I think that's quite tough to um, to push yourself through you know you've really just got to keep on pushing mm. and um, just deal with that sense of oh what is it it's um well it's fear i guess it's a fear of um of negative appraisal and the mm. fear of negative judgment and um you know i mean there might be there'll be lots of people who don't have who don't worry about it mm. god bless them mm. which more like that.
1: yeah but you have to like i think that that's what sort of um you know when you've got a passion for something you have to care about it and yeah that that sort of angst is a manifestation of your care for, yeah, for wanting sure. to do it well. Yeah, you know? exactly. Like yeah. if you don't give a shit then like <laughs> then if you make a bad product then yeah. whatever. And if someone goes, I didn't really like this, you'll be like, okay and then just not even pay any attention to the feedback <laughs> yeah. and, and whatever. Yeah. Like you've got to care about yeah. it. You know? Yeah. And yeah, I mean there's all different personalities how it'll work. But yeah, um, yeah like yeah, I don't know when it comes to production and, and chefs and things like that as well. Like anyone that's got a it's a product that they're putting out there to the public to be scrutinized. You're taking a leap of faith in in starting that, but, um, you know, it's passion that, it's passion that keeps people doing it. Yes. Yeah. Quite so.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Well, I I guess that, and that I suppose is what I notice most about the developing food culture down here. It is really driven by passion because it's, because often it's not like this is the cheapest land in the world it's not like it's the most affordable place to just sort of have a little plot of land and yeah. start growing something um really requires often a, a commitment and heaps and heaps of passion because um yeah yeah and right so yeah so i really do think that is what drives it largely yeah,
1: yeah. oh it's good to see and yeah i you know talking to a few other producers and things like that as well it's like how long has Kiama Farmer's market been around for now? Like four years? Three years?
0: Oh, it'd be about four. Yeah, yeah four. Maybe four and a half. So yeah. it's
1: still like... It's still sort of in the early days of, of, of the movement, you know? Yeah, for sure. You know, that, yep. that market gets better every week, yeah, you know? Yeah. You, yes. If you look at that market two years ago, it's different to what yeah, it is now. And, and there's more community engagement and there's more producers doing interesting yep. things. So, I don't know, like hopefully... Hopefully it's just something that continues to snowball along the way and people, you know, more chefs continue to use local produce and more people demand that of restaurants and cafes that they go to and and that sort of thing.
0: The way, you know, what should really happen, uh, in my my opinion, this area should rival the Hunter Valley. Mm. It should surpass it, quite Mm. frankly. Um, Just in terms of its proximity to Sydney the ease of getting down here and what's available down here in terms of the food, the, the places to stay and the beauty of the surroundings. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we probably don't have the same, uh, the quantity of winemakers, um, but what we should be striving for is the way that the Hunter has marketed itself as a food and wine destination Mm. you know that really that's what we should be trying to Mm. achieve Um, getting people down here who are interested in quality food and wine um, and are interested to stay here for a couple of days to explore it Mm.
1: Um, well I guess that's yeah that's kind of a little bit about what we're trying to showcase in the book is bring bring together everyone that's doing interesting things with food between the chefs and the producers but yeah definitely a thread that i've picked up from talking to like tom and simon from cavo and oh, myself yeah, and yeah. a few other people is that they the industry the hospitality industry and also the producers they they want to see the illawarra as, yeah. a, as, a, as a place that people can come yeah. f- as a for a holiday and for yeah. a foodie sort of yeah. foodie sort Absolutely. of destination because yeah. there, there's 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 plenty here there's heaps
0: yeah here. there's yeah. plenty here it's
1: just yeah like like you said like we're it hasn't been marketed in the same way no. that other, other regions have. Yeah. And I mean, it's, it, it really is a no brainer, like, especially a place like Jerengong or even, you know, the northern suburbs. Yep. Um, it's an hour train ride from Sydney. I know. And, and you don't have to, like, if you're going to go down for a long weekend, you can book an Airbnb and, you know, I mean, you might want to drive, but you don't have to fight any traffic if you don't yeah. want to. You can hop on the train yeah, and do it. Absolutely. You can sort of walk or ride around yep. and visit places. Yeah. And, yeah. It's I so think, accessible. Yeah,
0: it's really accessible. The problem has been that it's not all under one council. Yeah. It, you know, it's been sp- it's split up into little municipalities yeah. who each have their own little patch. They want to tend their patch and they don't want to collaborate. We should be marketing this region as a region, mm. you know, and it and it should be a sort of natural geographical flow from the northern end to the southern end or whatever mm. and, um, and we should be sort of really trying to highlight all of the, f- the food complexity and the wine complexity within that larger uh, landscape. Mm. Um, it's, you know, it seems to be a simple idea and it seems to chime with people when you talk to them about it but I don't know for some reason there just doesn't seem to be the um, what uh, the engagement at a, a sort of bureaucratic level
1: right okay and 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 it's
0: going to it's going to require some kind of cohesive um, engagement either at a sort of local government or a state government mm-hmm. level um, yeah i don't yeah, know yeah i
1: guess it, i guess like Every every little sort of contribution to it, though, from the private sector, like business, like yourself, yeah. or the, you know the slow food. Is it, what's a slow food saddleback? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, you know the guys at Cavo and yeah. some of the other producers around the region, the Kayama Farmers Markets and Dapto Community Farm, yeah, and yeah. all those sorts of things. Like every little incremental push they have mm-hmm. that involves the community and makes people aware that. People want to promote the Ilawara as, yeah. as a food destination. Can sort of help, and I guess, yeah, mm. it's sort of collaboration and providing avenues for events and people mm. to meet one another, sure. and chefs to engage with producers yes. and start using their their products and yeah. things like that. All sort of helps. But yeah, as you say, um, yeah, no, and that's all be, fantastic, be and that's yeah. all
0: important. You know, like you know, I'm not <laughs> um, I'm not saying that one should trump the other, but. It just seems to me that the next step, you know, to really drive the development of uh, food production down here even more, I think it would make sense to try to open this up to a sort of an educated um, Sydney, you know, a Mm -hmm. food savvy Sydney um, market. Yeah. The sort of people who would be sort of going for a long weekend in the Hunter Valley. You know, Mm. we should be trying, figuring out how to get them down here and um, selling our products to to that that sort of visitor, Mm. I think.
1: Did you hear that, councils? (laughs) (laughs) Nudge, nudge. Yeah. Oh, well, yeah, we'll we'll see what happens. But, um, yeah, I mean, people like yourself, you know. Keeping active in yeah, in that sure. in that space and yeah. whatever's going to yeah. contribute. So you know we'll see what One the future day. holds. One day, <laughs> cool. Yeah. We'll leave it there. Yeah, Thanks, all right. Kirsten. No worries. Thank you. For talk to you. Thanks for listening to my chat with Kirsten McHugh from the Schoolhouse in Jeringong. If you want to find out more about her cheeses or her teas or the workshops that she runs or Anything else that goes on at the schoolhouse, you can find her online at theschoolhouse.com.au. If you want to find out more about us, you can visit our website, which is quicksandfood.com, or you can find us at quicksandfood on social media, Facebook, and Instagram. Get out there and get the book. The Illawarra Cookbook is available at all good Illawarra retailers and also online at our website. Keep supporting local food, keep supporting independent publishing. Thanks for joining me for another quicksand food podcast, and we'll see you again with the next episode. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultrasoft Tissues